welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, 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 murder. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> We're back for another week. I know. I know. It's different. Every single week, and this episode is called Yale's Walter Freeman, When Ego Shatters Ethics in Medicine. In the early to mid 1900s, around the world, insane asylums were little better than concentration camps. The mad were neglected, left naked, or subjected to almost medieval torture techniques to quote unquote cure them of their madness. Nothing seemed to work. It was in this atmosphere that Walter Freeman developed the technique of lobotomy in 1936. Freeman's intentions were initially good. Patients who were psychotic received lobotomies and seemed to be cured. By cutting the brain's connection to the frontal lobe, lobotomy was a practice that held the promise of calming down the more erratic mental patients. The dark truth was that lobotomies essentially destroyed the part of the brain that controls emotion and memory the part that makes us human and that makes us, us. Long after it was evident that the side effects of lobotomy far outweighed the benefits, Freeman continued. He himself conducted over 4,000 lobotomies and by trumpeting the results nationwide, over 40,000 lobotomies were performed. Horrifyingly, at the end of his ego-driven campaign, he was performing transorbital lobotomies on children. Here today to talk about his upcoming book about Walter Freeman, entitled The Ice Pick Surgeon, we welcome Sam Kane. Hi. Hi, Sam. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And your book is actually about much more than Walter Freeman, isn't it? It expands to be really about the history of lobotomies and... Yeah, Walter Freeman is one of the chapters in there, and yeah. the title, The Ice Pick Surgeon, comes from him. But yeah, it's a bigger book than just Walter Freeman. I think he is a good exemplar, though, of what the book is about, which is each chapter is about another scientist or another researcher who got so obsessed with some topic or idea that they took things way, way too far, trampling ethical boundaries or, in some cases, even committing crimes in the name of science. So there are chapters on piracy, espionage, murder, fraud, sabotage, all sorts of things. And what I really try to do in my books in general is talk about the human side of science. So they're very story-based, very character-driven, a lot of conflict, a lot of drama, heroes, villains, things like that. And usually with my books, I try to have a fairly light touch with them. I enjoy bringing out the humor, the sort of fun side of science, things like that. And this book, I think, does have some humor in it, but it also takes a look, again, at some of the darker elements 
of science history as well, people committing crimes, getting obsessed, things like that. So that's kind of where the book came from. And I guess why I wrote it is I think we all have sort of this fascination with the dark side of life in general. And that's why true crime and thriller books like that are so popular. And this book, I really got interested in that idea, again, of people committing these crimes in the name of science. Because we normally think about the pursuit of knowledge and science as a good thing. And usually it is a good thing. But every once in a while, it gets twisted in this dark way. And that's what this book tries to explore. I love it. And you also have a podcast called The Disappearing Spoon, which and a book entitled The Disappearing Spoon. We've listened to a number of your talks. And what I love about what you do is you say to yourself, hey, you know, someone should be writing a book about this. And then, well, why not me? <laughs> you know, and you you, yeah. go and you you write it about it. I think it's wonderful. You know, I love the the human side and the wit in which you deliver all of this, because I really am not a huge science person, not as much as Sarah, but I'm, uh, listening to your podcast, which I suggest to everyone, I just was completely enthralled and, and found the subject matter just fascinating. And I, I think that it is so interesting to, I mean, I, when I was studying Walter Freeman, I think what kept coming to my mind was the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it's, it's like you just see that it kind of all starts out right, but it, it gets, you know, it, along the way, ego and power and all these other things kind of take over. I also think what I found fascinating is in your podcast, Disappearing Spoon, you have, there's one, there's one episode that has to do with fighting neurosyphilis, which was this debilitating condition for people with malaria. You're fighting one horror with another horror, essentially, mm-hmm. and it was actually effective. It was, it was actually effective. So to circle back to Freeman, I think to his credit initially, I think that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to improve, you know, insane asylums that were horrendous at the time. So, Sam, can you kind of describe to our listeners what some of these conditions were in insane asylums, let's say in 1920s, you know, or early to mid 1900s? What was Walter Freeman looking at when he was first introduced to insane asylums and he first saw the conditions? What was he seeing? Yeah, I mean, as as wild as it sounds to a modern listener or a modern person, lobotomies were defensible in their very early days. You mentioned sort of at the beginning about how they drew comparisons to concentration camps, and that was a legitimate comparison at the time, or, you know, just sort of a warehouse for human beings that we could not cure. Because if you go back to that time, They had zero effective treatments, including zero effective drugs to treat these disorders. And nowadays, looking back, they can seem like these awful things, lobotomies. But when you have no other options to help people, there were a lot of doctors at the time that said, you know, maybe we should give something like this a try. And in very limited cases, they did end up having good effects. These are people who were so paranoid about someone else coming in the room that they would immediately attack them. They could not be let outside because they would try to run away. They would be tearing their clothing off. So you couldn't even have them in clothing or they couldn't have a bed because they would dismantle it and hurt themselves with it. So these were the absolute worst cases 
and something like a lobotomy, it did calm them down. So the point of a lobotomy was to essentially disconnect two parts of the brain. There's the frontal lobes of the brain, which we normally associate with reason, higher thinking, things like that. And then there's the emotional parts of the brain. And those two parts of the brain have connections that send signals back and forth between them. A lobotomy, the basic point was to sever the connections between those two sections and basically stop the emotional centers of the brain from revving up and taking over the rest of the brain. So it calmed them down and it allowed people to do just simple everyday human things like go outside and have a walk or you know, just have a meal with another person. So as a last resort, an operation of last resort, lobotomies were defensible when Walter Freeman started in the 1930s and 1940s. The problem though, as you were alluding to, was that Walter Freeman was a very ambitious person and he decided he was going to be sort of the savior of all of these people in insane asylums around the world. He was going to be the person to clear them out and basically prevent anyone from ever having to go to an asylum again. And so what he started doing is he started expanding the operation, not just to patients of last resort, but to anyone with any sort of marginal um, uh, mental disorder, essentially. Started taking on marginal cases, pushing them on people who really didn't need them and probably would have gotten better on their own. And that's when Walter Freeman became the notorious doctor that we know today and that we associate with lobotomies. Can we back up a little bit? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Walter Freeman, where, you know, sort of where he came from, what his legacy was? Yeah, he was Sorry. from a prominent family in Philadelphia. His grandfather was a very famous neurosurgeon, operated on presidents, things like that. His father, though, was sort of a weak and ineffectual person, also a doctor, but didn't really like being a doctor, and Walter never really had a lot of respect for it. So a lot of what was driving him was this ambition to be as good as his grandfather and to kind of show his father that he was a more dynamic, a, a better man than his father was. And I think that's a lot of what drove him, especially at the beginning, and how he got this sort of savior, kind of messiah complex that I really think he had. He ended up going to Yale for undergraduate work, and then ended up going to medical school after that, and kind of traipsing around Europe, wasn't really sure what he wanted to do until he started to get into neurology and had some encounters at insane asylums that made him really think, I, this is my mission in life. This is what I'm going to do is save these people. So he did start off with the best intentions. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And again, it was defensible at the beginning. He had some other neurosurgeons who were partners with him that, and I guess this is another uh, good distinction to make. At the beginning, he was doing a, a lobotomy where you essentially had to remove a part of the skull, like a normal brain surgery nowadays, go in there, operate on the brain, and then replace the skull. It was an invasive surgery, took a lot of work, long recovery time, things like that. Walter Freeman got impatient with that, and he decided he wanted to essentially, uh, someone once called him the Henry Ford of lobotomies, and he loved that. Yeah. He loved being called the Henry Ford of lobotomies. He wanted to essentially mass produce them and have it be an outpatient procedure. 
And his surgical partners were horrified by the very idea of outpatient neurosurgery. But Walter Freeman thought it was the only way to tackle the problem of insane asylums. And he eventually developed what's called a transorbital lobotomy, or as his critics called it, an ice pick lobotomy, because his first instrument for doing this was an ice pick that he found in his kitchen drawer. He took an instrument from his kitchen drawer and started using that in neurosurgery. And without getting too much into the details, I talk about it more in the book, but essentially, he would access the brain through the eye socket. He would slip the ice pick in there, do his thing in the brain, and then send them home within an hour often. Yeah, I mean, I, it shocked me to hear that he would line up, he would go visit a facility and they would literally line up the patients. Yeah, so he would have you know these sort of contests with himself to try to see how many he could do in a day. He got 25 of them done one day. He started taking on celebrity cases. I discuss in the book how he did Rosemary Kennedy, yes. who was John F. Kennedy's sister, younger sister. It did not go well. The Kennedy family was furious with him, and they hushed it up after that. So there's kind of this hidden history to Walter Freeman as well. And I was also surprised, and maybe we can just, you know, I really had the impression that a lot, I had the kind of one flow over the cuckoo's nest impression of lobotomies, that you're kind of just, just drooling and not really conscious. And that, I read, isn't really what the lobotomy effects were. No, uh, that's kind of a Hollywood stereotype. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's just such a powerful image. It got stamped onto people's minds. But as you said, that's not really what lobotomies did. Essentially, what lobotomies did is people lost their sparkle, as they put it. So they could do normal everyday things, but they had no initiative. They had no drive. If you left them to their own devices, they might just sit around all day staring at the wall and doing nothing. If you asked them, hey, do you want to go on a walk or should we go get some food or something? They would be like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, we'll go get some food. No enthusiasm for it, no sparkle, no drive to do anything. So they lost their initiative and they would often behave inappropriately in social situations. It really, it kind of left them more, I mean, this is a pejorative way to put it, but it left them more sort of bovine than human in that they were just sort of existing there instead of living what we would probably consider a full human life. I mean, I think what stands out in my mind, there was a husband who at some point goes to Walter Friedman with a gun and he says, my wife is no longer my wife. Like, you know, she's, you took my wife away, even though she's there in body, she's not the same person that she was. Yeah, they're just, they, they just weren't yeah. the same people they were before. The people, mm -hmm. the, you know, if you'd married someone, they suddenly lost that spark. They just weren't who you were before. And another point of this that especially nowadays we would look back and at the time they didn't think about it as much, but women were most of the lobotomy patients, something like two thirds of them were women. And it's a little unclear whether they, it was because they were diagnosed at higher rates with certain ailments, certain mental ailments, or whether they kind of in some ways targeted women because they weren't behaving what they considered appropriate at the time. But women ended up being the majority of these lobotomy cases over history. Sort of the hysteria, you know, it wasn't hysteria, kind of like a, a typical diagnosis for women who yes, probably yeah. were just kind of 
And they would even, I surprised, I mean, even grief, they would treat people for, you know, if somebody lost a child or people would be treated for something that is a normal emotion with a lobotomy. But I also found it interesting that people sought him out for lobotomies. People went to him and said, help me. The lack of help at the time, I mean, if you were suicidal or had a mental break, they just housed you. There was no, like you said, there was no help. So you can- Yeah, there was no other option. Again, no drugs, no treatments. Uh, I mentioned in the book some of the treatments they used, which were pretty bad. They would inject them with horse's blood. They would yeah. give them insulin and put them in a shock, things like that. Yeah, um, not much better than leeches. And Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, was, it was pretty pretty grim stuff. And as you said, people did seek them out. I mentioned uh, the Kennedy family. Yeah, uh, That was Joseph Kennedy, the father of JFK, who came to Freeman and said, my daughter, I, I can't handle her. I can't keep her under control. Can you do something with her? And Freeman said, okay, sure, we'll, we'll try this out. And it failed pretty badly. When do you think he kind of lost it? When do you think Freeman kind of lost his way ethically? Was it pretty early on, do you think? Or do you think it was? I am fascinated by this idea that at a certain point, the ego took over and he was he was really kind of a showman, I think, too. He was not a quiet guy. He wasn't a behind the scenes guy. And in fact, he wasn't even a brain surgeon himself. He just had a very keen knowledge of the brain's anatomy. And he's really trumpeting this procedure. He's trumpeting lobotomies. But at a certain point, it goes from actual brain surgery to what you were saying, this transorbital lobotomy, which is the ice pick through the eye and pound it into the brain to sever the connection. It's a hideous thing. But sorry, I'm asking a question with a question in, in some ways. But when do you think he kind of lost his way ethically? Yeah, you're right that he was a real showman in that he would go to these insane asylums in the Midwest, places like South Dakota, and he would have all the reporters lined up there taking pictures. He was cracking jokes while he was doing it. He loved any sort of audience, even while he was performing these surgeries. And when you're talking about him losing his way, I think we can talk about sort of two phases where he lost his way in that the first one was in the 1940s when he decided to expand the operation and shift from the brain surgeries that we were talking about to these sort of jiffy lube lobotomies where it was a quick inpatient procedure where you do a dozen or more every day. So that was kind of the 1940s that happened. Then it became very controversial, a lot of fights with the establishment. But he would defend himself every time by saying, hey, look, there are no other alternatives. What should we do if there are no other alternatives? But then in the 1950s, the second phase of him losing his way, a drug came out. Trade name was Thorazine, which is the first real psychiatric drug. And it was a real alternative to the lobotomy. Some people even called it a chemical lobotomy, but that was sort of a, I think, a bad description of it because a drug is reversible. It doesn't do brain damage. It's, it doesn't involve, you know, severing permanent connections in your brain, things like that. And in a lot of ways, Thorazine was a miracle drug in that people who had not spoken a word in two or three decades would suddenly pop awake. They could have a conversation. It would essentially bring them back to life, bring them back to a human life. And at that point, they now had a viable alternative to lobotomies. But Walter Freeman, to his discredit, 
refused to basically accept that these drugs worked. And he kept trying to disparage them, trying to discredit them, and just kept pushing his lobotomies. And that's, I think, where it really tips over into what I call in the book sort of a sinful scientific regime where he had an alternative to it, but he just kept going because he wanted the credit. He wanted to be the person who was the savior. Is chlorpromazine, is that the same as thorazine? Um, yeah, chlorpromazine, yep. Okay, okay. And tell us a little bit how they discovered why that was effective on certain people. It's kind of an interesting story. It was from World War II, where they would find people who had what they called shell shock, or we might call it something like PTSD nowadays, where people were in battle and the horrors of battle essentially broke them. You know, they might be unresponsive, they might go into some sort of catatonic shock, something like that. And they found this drug actually kind of revived these people. I believe they started using it in surgery as a way, as sort of an anesthetic almost, and found out it had this side effect of kind of popping people awake. And from there, from the battlefield, it slowly kind of made its way into psychiatric medicine until a doctor in the early 1950s in France tried it out at an asylum and realized that it was kind of a miracle drug, the first psychiatric drug that existed. You had written that 50 million people took it. 50 million, and it's one of the most widely prescribed drugs in history, and it probably had a bigger social effect than almost any other drug in history, in that not only did so many people take it, but because it was a viable alternative, you suddenly had a way to shut down these insane asylums. And before this, you know, for a couple of centuries, especially in the Western world, pretty much any reasonable-sized city had an insane asylum. You had to have somewhere to put people who just couldn't make it on their own. Suddenly, when this drug came about, all the asylums started emptying out. And nowadays, asylums are pretty rare things. So it went to this sort of ubiquitous feature of city life to something that essentially does not exist nowadays. And that's all because of this drug. That's amazing, because Thorazine now has kind of a bad rap. It does, yeah. It's, oh, it's, yeah. Not a, it's not a pleasant drug to take. There's a lot of side effects, and it's a bit of a crude instrument. But at the time, it was the only thing they had. And for some people, it did really give them their lives back. I have such mixed emotions about Freeman because Freeman presents, you know, there's a lot of duality to him because, you know, he's kind of a monster in one sense, but he is really obsessed with this and obsessed with helping people. I mean, his ego is mixed in, but he devotes his entire life to it to the detriment of his family. He works constantly. He sleeps in his car. He spends all of his time devoted to this. I know it's mixed in with his ego, but there is definitely, in my just my own opinion, a big part of him that really is trying to help people, even though it's very distorted. As you put it earlier, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. He had very, very good intentions. And I think that's actually a common theme that comes up throughout the book. You see this with a lot of the different scientists here in that if you look at just their intentions, they were trying to do good in a lot of cases. They were trying to make the world a better place. It's just that they were willing to, again, trample ethical boundaries or even commit crimes in pursuit of making the world supposedly a better place. 
I think they fell in a lot of cases for sort of a means and fallacy where the ends justifies the means. And they were willing to, again, hurt people in the short term because they thought that their long-term vision was going to be so amazing, that the world would be such a better place once they got through this sort of rough patch that they thought. Yeah, it's, it's, a lot. it's sad to read about these people who had such good intentions to be corrupted or to end up really on the wrong side of the law in many cases. And he seemed to not be able to look at the evidence that was contrary to his procedure. You know, when his partner (laughs) Watts says to him, when he switches over to the faster procedure, you know, he isn't able to take any criticism. And when the drugs come out, he isn't able to look at that logically. You know, he's so the tunnel vision, I think, is what I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, you know, he would follow up on patients. He would do a lot. He would do a ton of follow-up, which is something a good medical researcher should do. But essentially, he took all that and then sort of twisted it to fit the narrative, the story that he wanted. So again, he was doing things right in some ways, but then not doing things right in other cases. Yeah, I mean, he is kind of a sad character, I I found. Personally. Personally, yeah. yeah. In his familial life, he lost his son at some point. But how how do you think history? will will remember Dr. you know Dr. Walter Friedman. I mean right now he's remembered as one of the most notorious doctors in history. I mean there's Joseph Bengele, the Nazi doctor, who's probably the most infamous, but Walter Friedman is up there among the the most infamous doctors in history. History has not treated him very well, even though he I mean he died thinking that history was going to justify it, but it, it really has not. And I, mean, I think there is another layer to his character where you can look at his good intentions and it makes him a more interesting character. I don't think that really forgives him, though, all of the damage that he did do to a lot of people. Agreed. Agreed. I think the most horrifying thing to me is that he he was performing lobotomies on children as, oh, as young as four right. at the end of his career. And that you have this idea of like a preemptive lobotomy. It's mind-blowing. Well, it was almost like he had humans, you know, he was experimenting on. And I think this is also the society, you know, the the mental patients were kind of throwaways. And, you know, today we have like a patient code of ethics and all these things to protect patients. And maybe you can speak to back then. I mean, doctors could kind of do whatever they wanted to these patients. It's kind of ironic. There are a couple of cases where I talk about in the book where you had these experiments going on. This was one of them. There was a, an STD study they were doing in Guatemala where they were infecting people with syphilis and gonorrhea on purpose in order to study the course of the disease, things like that. A couple other cases as well where they were doing this work at the same time they were actually writing the Nuremberg Code for medical research ethics wow. in Germany in response to all the things that Nazi doctors had done to concentration camp prisoners. So I think looking back on it, you can really see this disconnect among doctors in Europe, United States, a few other places, where they were thinking about uh, horrific medical experiments as something that other people do. It's something that happens over there. It's not something that we would do. And we don't need this code of ethics. It's sort of beside the point because we know that we're good people. But looking back at it, you can see that they were doing this work at the same time they were trying to formulate these ethical codes 
in response to what the Nazis did. And it just it just seems like a horrendous disconnect Absolutely. nowadays. At the time, they were just convinced that they were on the right side of history. Oh, and I don't think they thought of it as experimenting on people. You know, they thought of it as they were helping people. But then you have the example of the uh, the Tuskegee, uh, uh, how do you pronounce that? I'm sorry, yeah. syphilis experiment where they were injecting black people with syphilis and watching years of how this affected them without giving them any treatment. So that is, that's a bit of a misconception. They did not okay. inject them with syphilis. Okay, okay. They had syphilis and they just sat and watched it basically ruin their health in some cases, but they did not actually give it to okay, them. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, good. Thanks. I mean, thanks for clearing that up. Yeah, no, but I mean, still hideous. Uh... Oh, it was, it was not, a, not an ethical experiment by any question. This yeah, is yeah. another case where um, a drug came about, penicillin, in this case, that they could have cured these people in a lot of cases, but they were so in love with their research that they essentially declined to do anything. There's an infamous quote that I mention in the book where one doctor there says that his idea of heaven is unlimited syphilis and unlimited resources to treat it because he got so obsessed with the idea of learning about syphilis and just experimenting on it that he kind of lost sight of the idea that the point of medicine is to help people. It's not to learn about these viruses or bacteria and what they do to the body. It's to cure people. And again, they just kind of lost sight of that in some cases. This is where the whole mad scientist idea comes up. I mean, you can see how anyone in life can get tunnel vision on an idea, but with a doctor, you have this, this power, power over human beings. And at this time, Freeman had the ability to, to do something with these people. Yeah. In the book, I try to cover a lot of different sciences. I cover physics, paleontology, botany, things like that. But medical stuff does come up often for exactly the reasons that you are talking about. You know, there are, were physicists who committed crimes in the pursuit of their science, but that didn't affect human beings individually right. in the same way that, as you said, doctors have a real power over people. When Laura and I, Laura, she always goes out and kind of comes back to me and says, hey, what about Dr. Walter Freeman? He went to Yale. You know, we always try to find an Ivy connection. And so we were also looking at, we were actually looking at the trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos woman, which is coming up in August. And just this idea of kind of, we were originally going to call this, this episode True Believers. Because you you have this sort of, I really look at her, she's such an interesting character and there's such a great HBO documentary about her that I recommend definitely to our so listeners. So Dropout, right? Was it? No, no. Um, it's a... Uh, oh, that's the podcast. Yeah, that's the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Blood Something. No, well, there's, there's a book. book. There's a book there's called a book Bad Blood. And then there's Out for Blood, which is the HBO okay. movie, I, I think. And so in any case, so... But, you know, the, the, what you, you see a similar, not directly working on people, but she had, you know, Elizabeth Holmes developed this very sexy little black box where you could prick a tiny bit of blood and test it and do hundreds of tests. And it's kind of like this impossible mission. And she really wanted it to be the iPhone kind of, of diagnosing medical conditions for people and the whole idea of personalized medicine. And, it's a brilliant idea. It just didn't happen to work. And I think 
you know, she failed to sort of see that it wasn't working and just, it's kind of an interesting parallel. But, you know, fortunately, nobody's lives were experimented on, but she, but money, I mean, she took, lives weren't experimented on, but I think almost, no, but I mean, if you're medically diagnosing people with cancer or not cancer or syphilis or not syphilis, Mm -hmm. and you're giving either false positives or it's only 60, 65% accurate, right? That's very dangerous. You know, that's the liability. I do see parallels in that they were both trying to essentially, Freeman was the Henry Ford of lobotomies. She was trying to do something similar with these quick diagnostic blood tests mm-hmm. in that she wanted it in every, I think it was Walgreens. Walgreens, yeah. Had the, the partnership with. She wanted to bring it to the masses. Walter Freeman wanted to bring lobotomies to the masses. Right, yeah. There was a sense that this isn't going to be just something small that we can do in a lab and sort of advance medicine. This is going to touch every person's life. We're going to push it to until, until it's basically ubiquitous in our society. So they really had, both of them had these sort of grandiose visions of themselves in that way. And the inability to see any evidence to the contrary. Right. That's really one of the major parallels we saw was as the evidence was coming in, this isn't going to work. They both had that complete tunnel vision. Just to clarify, the documentary on HBO was called The Inventor. If anyone oh, wants okay. to see oh, it. sorry, sorry. Yes. Okay. I, I, Which I've seen like four times. I can't believe I'm I clearly have not had enough coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it brings home how, how dangerous, like you said, other people may have done these things in physics and other areas where they didn't jeopardize people's lives, but it shows how dangerous it is when somebody does this with something medical and where you really, you know, you have somebody's, you're giving somebody a false positive on syphilis and they have syphilis and they could spread that to another person or you're messing with someone's brain. And this Elizabeth Holmes case is recent. So people are still kind of, a lot of medical ethics stuff still happening. In the book, I did try to emphasize, I mean, the book starts back with, you know, Cleopatra back in the the BCs. Yeah. It runs all the way. (laughs) Sorry. You kind of ruined Cleopatra for me to any of the listeners. Cleopatra was a lot more brutal than I knew about. Yeah, it was was a brutal time. (laughs) And and the stories, they kind of run up to modern times as well, where I talked about, you know, cases going on in the the 2010s. So there's quite a gamut. And as you said, these things still go on today. And I think it's important to notice that even the cases that happened in the 1800s or the 1900s, we're still dealing with the fallout of them in a lot of cases where scientists are confronting these kind of things. I talk in the book about vaccine hesitancy and how that is connected in a lot of cases to real horrific medical stuff that happened back in the day. So we can draw a direct line between the things that are happening now and what happens then. And it shows you that the past isn't really past. It's still there in a lot of ways. I feel like someone like Walter Freeman, that there's two sort of breaches. There's the breach that the code of ethics to do no harm as a physician. And then there's sort of a scientific breach where you have all this evidence in front of you, but you can't, again, the ends justify the means kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's why some people go that way. Who knows? But I think a lot of it has to do with uh, ego. I'm right. I'm going to make this work. I'm famous. I'm Dr. Walter Freeman. I think an obs- I think it's really an obsession. I think the yeah. obsession just takes hold and gives these people tunnel vision. And mm-hmm. I mean, that to me seems like 
I studied Freeman pretty extensively and it just seems like he had this complete obsession that he just yeah. couldn't see anything else. With every chapter in the book, you see that it's the obsession that really gets people and the tunnel vision and they just drive forward no matter what. No matter what. And in, some, in some cases, you look at science history and that's been a good thing. It helps people work harder than they might have. It pushes them when other people might have given up to overcome failure. Right. But in these cases, it just sort of got twisted in this dark way. Right. Especially when it was at the expense of human beings. Yeah, exactly. Well, Sam, this is fascinating. I actually found Freeman to be a really, really interesting subject matter. I really did. And I mean, I found your book and your podcast and everything super interesting. I want to read your other books now. I actually had one more thing I was going to... Just a bit of a teaser from the book, Please. Um, a bit of a trivia question about Ivy League stuff. So this comes from the chapter in the book about the Unabomber who went to Harvard and famously underwent some really brutal, almost torturous psychological experiments yes. while he was there. And I came across a bit of a trivia question, which is that he was the third Harvard alum who was almost executed for his crimes. And I was wondering if you know who the other two Harvard alums who've been executed for crimes were. Parkman. Um, Parkman, yep, that's good. Parkman and... Um, Parkman and... We know this, Sarah. I, I can't think of it. I can't think of the second one. And, and we're going to kick ourselves when you tell us, Sam. Okay. It was okay. actually before that. It took place in the 1690s. 1690. Oh, yeah. um, oh, oh, I know it, it has to do with Harvard Hall, I think, and I cannot remember the name. Oh. It was a guy named George Burroughs who was executed for witchcraft. Oh, oh really? I, I didn't, oh. Know, he, oh, I I didn't know, know that. Yeah, didn't know it. Yeah. Burroughs. Okay. George Burroughs, and then Parkman, he mentioned the, oh. the sort of infamous anatomy murder case, and then. Unabomber was almost the third. He probably would have been had not been for that plea deal. But wow. Little Ivy League murder trivia there. Okay. Well, no, thank you. We are constantly we're, we're always constantly looking, looking for, for this kind of we have eight Ivies and yep. 37% of our cases are Harvard. Oh God. I went to Harvard and she never lets me forget this. So that's always Sam, my thing is ever why? You know, we always want to know why. Why is disproportionately Harvard? Because we're the best at everything. She says they're the best at everything. <laughs> <laughs> but that we actually plan to do Ted Kaczynski at, at some point in the experiments on Harvard. The, the experiments are the fascinating the experiments, part of, not yeah, me, you know, and, yeah, yeah. A, yeah. yeah. But this yeah. this has all been fascinating, and we encourage everybody to listen to your podcast and to check out your books, which we'll put on our website and on our page, and we'll put a link to your podcast on our page so everybody can check it out. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and how do we find this book? This book is coming out on the 13th, right? The, July 13th, the Ice Pick Surgeon is out. Okay. And you should be able to find it at your local bookstore. It's available, you know, anywhere online that you can find the books. There's an okay. audio version out oh. that I'll be releasing a snippet on my podcast, but then you can get the audio version as well. So essentially, wherever you find books, you can find the Ice Pick Surgeon. Terrific. I noticed on your recent podcast, you actually had a little excerpt from the book. I did. Yeah, that was yeah. A, a, an episode that we did kind of around one of the scenes. It was called The Anatomy Riot. Um, yeah, which actually, I it, was, it's uh, connected yeah. to Columbia in some way. So another little yes. connection there. Yeah. And how can people get in touch with you? Are you on, are you on Instagram, Twitter? 
They can reach me through Twitter. It's Sam underscore Keen, K-E-A-N. Or if they go to my website, which is just samkeen.com, there's a way to get in touch with me there, a little email form to fill out, anything like that. Cool. Great. Awesome. Well, this has been really, really interesting. And we encourage everyone to get the book and listen and if, reach out to Sam if they have any questions. Fascinating. Reach out to us. Fascinating yes. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Sam, thanks a million. It's been wonderful, wonderful having you on. Yes. Well, thanks for having me. Murder, murder.